Do take a seat. And a very warm welcome uh, to Duke Street uh, this evening. Let me apologize for my voice. It's disappearing, hopefully not within the next hour. I successfully managed to preach with this voice this morning and um, over at Gunnersbury. They say hello, by the way. We're always really encouraging going to uh, Gunnersbury. And the uh, first chap came up to me afterwards and said, just so you know, I didn't hear a word of that. So, which is pretty much what you want to hear. Not as discouraging, actually, as a chap who used to regularly come up to me after preaching uh, back in Reading and say that he had heard every word and he under hadn't understood any of it, which I, I thought was probably worse, actually. At least the chap this morning hadn't heard me. Anyway, um, praying for God's uh, sustaining on the voice. Uh, great to have you, though. If you're uh, new with us or relatively new with us, we would love to get to know you better. Easy way to do that. Head to our website uh, on the main homepage there, click on the word hello, and uh, there'll be an easy way to give uh, a few contact details and a way for us to stay in touch with you. And uh, you'll start getting a weekly e-news email, which will fill you in on all sorts of things going on. Here are three. I think we're going to show some slides. Will, do you mind just going through those three pictures one by one? First is uh, a notice about next Sunday evening. This is the seventh of the seven uh, Life 22 events that we've been running uh, this term. We had a great um, time at the quiz last night. Great fun, good chance to talk about the Lord Jesus and the Bible with a few people there. Um, and uh, this next Sunday will be the third of our Talking Points events. Uh, we're going to be thinking about the interaction between science and faith or science and God. And what better person to ask uh, that of than, a, than an academic? Um, a professor, no less, Professor uh, Richard Buggs, a Christian evolutionary biologist. You may well have uh, people in your life who think that those words don't belong together. So bring them along. If they think that Christianity has no intellectual credibility, bring them along. He's really sharp. He's thought about this stuff very clearly, uh, and it will be well worth coming to. Same format as the previous Talking Points events. Uh, we're going to interview Richard. Uh, for a more personal angle. How does he think his scientific convictions and the Bible fit? How can he hold those things together? Does he have to turn his brain off when he became a Christian? He's then going to give a presentation on the question you'll see there. Has Darwin uh, disproved God? And then there'll be a chance for Q&A from the floor. So if you bring a friend along, they can be confident that uh, they'll have a chance to ask him any questions they have on that whole area. Don't miss out yourself. Bring a friend next Sunday. 5.30. And then uh, a few days later, uh, the women's event, uh, that's on December the 3rd at 7.30, deck the doors with bling and baubles. So uh, not one to be missed. Again, designed for those who aren't used to coming along to church. So think about who that might be in your life. They need to be a woman, of course. Um, invite them along, bring them. It's ticketed. Uh, you can grab tickets from the website. And if you want to grab one of these cards, you'll find a bunch of these on the wall out there to take and give away. Um, and then the big bumper one with every Christmassy type altogether thing on it um, looks like this. Uh, go grab a few of these, give them out to neighbors, colleagues. Uh, you'll notice on here, for example, uh, we're running both traditional carols and what we're calling a contemporary carol service. All that means is we're singing familiar carols, carols that you know and your friends know, but they're going to be given a bit of a a contemporary feel in the way they're played. All right, that's the main difference. But it will be familiar stuff to sing along to, 
And again, this is designed for those who aren't used to coming to church. We're going to try and explain the gospel as clearly and simply as we can. So have a think. Who could you bring? We're also putting that on, by the way, because on one of those dates, there's a World Cup final happening. And on the off chance that England get anywhere near that cup final, um, it might make the other Sunday invite all the more important to have open. So grab some of these. I think you might invite. Let's turn together to God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel 10. Samuel 10, page 261, if you're using uh, one of the red church Bibles that you can grab at the door if you need a Bible. Rodney has some for you, like Father Christmas. All right, 2 Samuel 10 then. After this, referring presumably back to chapter 9, and what we saw last week with David and Mephibosheth. More on that in a moment. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal deal loyally, or you might notice at the bottom of the page, it might say kindly, with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally or kindly with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites, excuse me, said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they'd become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobar, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makar with 1,000 men and the men of Tov, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobar and of Rehob and the men of Tov and Makar were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they'd been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam, 
with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they'd been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Let's pray for God's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you still speak today. We've heard you speak just now. Help us to respond to your kindness with repentance and faith. And we pray very practically that my voice would hold up, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 9, we enjoyed together, didn't we, the beautiful picture of David's kindness to poor Mephibosheth. Remember Saul's grandson, one who ought to have been treated by David as an enemy. But we saw him in chapter 9 gathered in, gathered in to David's family and seated at his table, given this wonderful status and security. It was a beautiful picture. We saw ourselves there, didn't we, in, in Mephibosheth, but rebels maybe, those who ought to be enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, but raised by him, raised with him, and seated at God's table as family. An extraordinary turnaround. Well, that was how chapter 9 finished, but you'll have noticed that chapter 10 finishes very differently. Just remind yourself there in verse 18. We read in verse 18 of David killing of the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and fatally wounding their commander. Now, why does chapter 10 have such a different outcome to chapter 9? Maybe uh, David is like the little girl from the poem. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very good indeed. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Is that what's going on here? Temperamental David? Is this the kind of kingship that God had in mind when he chose David? Remember, David here isn't just any king. He's the king of God's choosing. And he's therefore a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So is that what we're to think of Jesus, temperamental? Flip-flopping between kindness and barbarism, cruelty. Catch Jesus on a good day, you might end up joining his family, becoming royalty. But catch him on a bad day. But did you notice that though the chapters have very different endings, they share a very similar beginning. At the beginning of chapter 10, David hasn't got out of bed on the wrong side. We find him, as chapter 10 begins, just as chapter 9 began, looking around for someone to be kind to. So, three headings, just for a change this evening. Firstly, kindness repeated. This is verses 1 and 2, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. 
Well, the targets of David's kindness are a people called the Ammonites. The Ammonites were no great friends of Israel's as we look back through the pages of the Old Testament. Ammon began in scandal with the fruit of Lot's incest with his daughter. And as they formed together a nation, these people proved a thorn in Israel's side. And do you remember fat King Eglon stabbed on the toilet by Ehud, the left-handed savior? Surely one of the greatest stories in the Bible. Well, who was it who marched with Eglon against Israel? The Ammonites. We find them doing it again later in Judges, in Judges 11. This time it was Jephthah who had to drive them back. And then those of us who have got really good memories might remember back in 1 Samuel 11, a king called Nahash went around gouging out the right eyes of all the Israelite men to humiliate them. Nahash, king of the Ammonites. So again, we're dealing with a people who by rights ought to be enemies of the king. They're no great friends of Israel. So surprising, surely, here as chapter 10 begins, to find Dan, uh, David uh, in looking for a, an object of kindness, landing of all people on the Ammonites. Deciding, notice, beginning of verse, chapter 10, just as he did beginning of chapter 9, showing kindness to a son for the sake of a father. Verse 2, I will deal loyally, kindly with Hanan, the son of Nahash as his father dealt loyally with me. And so David sends this delegation of servants off to console Hanan in his grief. It's a, an act of kindness. <clears throat> and we don't really know what Nahash's loyalty was. I'm not sure there's a clear reference to it. David obviously knew maybe some help in some battle in the past. Nonetheless, David shows him kindness. Surprising to us maybe, not very much like the, the rulers of the world to which we've become accustomed maybe, Random acts of kindness don't tend to characterize world leaders. But at his best, David doesn't rule, does he, like the leaders of the world? At his best, David rules as God rules. And God rules with amazing kindness. I wonder how much you've reflected on God's kindness to humanity at large. I was reminded of this verse recently. Uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen. Well, do you mind just showing the verse that you've got on the slide there? It's a verse taken from Acts chapter 14. And the context is that Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel in what we would now call Turkey. And in chapter 14, the locals have decided to bow down to them as messengers of the gods. They've decided that Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul is Hermes, his messenger. And those choice of gods, that's no accident. These were the kinds of gods these people were worshipping. Had they even heard of the God of the Bible? Maybe not. And this is what Paul says to these group of Greek God worshippers. Yet, says Paul, he, that is the Lord, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You can hear what Paul's saying there. All the time that you've been bowing down to Zeus and all the rest of the Greek pantheon, do you know that the rains that fell from heaven that grew your crops came from the Lord? You know who gave you those big harvests? Uh, you know where 
every bite of a good sandwich and every glowing sunset and every moving melody and every other happiness that you've ever enjoyed has come from the Lord. Even as you rejected him for idols, he was doing you good. Speaking on behalf of Christians, if I may, I think sometimes we talk about uh, non-Christians as though living as a non-Christian is the most miserable life imaginable. Sometimes, I guess it can be, but not always, is it? If you're a Christian with um, non-Christian friends, don't, aren't some of them quite happy? Don't some of them really enjoy their jobs? They like their home, they like where they live, they love their family, they really enjoy weekends, they love their favorite restaurants, their sunny holidays. And you think about them and maybe you think, well, maybe they don't need God, maybe they don't really need the gospel. And the Apostle Paul jumps right in there and he says to us, but where did all that come from? Where do you think all of that happiness has come from? Who's filling their hearts with food and gladness? It's the Lord. Isn't that extraordinarily kind? You know, you walk through Richmond today in the sunshine and you walk past people enjoying the sunshine together. They're, I don't know, walking their dog. They're hanging out with friends. You see fathers chatting to their daughters. You see happy humanity. And every joy given comes from him, every good and perfect gift from the Lord above. And that's just, if you like, God's general kindness. It's before we've begun to talk about his amazing specific kindness in the gospel, the sending of his own son to die knowingly, willingly as a sacrifice, a substitute. It's before we've talked about the Lord Jesus sending messengers all over the world into every nation, just as David sends his messengers here, crossing borders and boundaries with a message of peace and consolation to people with no hope. God is extraordinarily kind. And if you've, been, if you've heard the gospel, you've been shown amazing kindness too. I don't know whether you can remember where you were when you first heard it, but you know it wasn't an accident. It didn't happen by chance. If you heard it from your parents, it wasn't an accident that you had Christian parents. You know, speaking of somebody who grew up in a Christian home, the older I get, maybe you're the same, the older I get, the bigger privilege I realize it was that from, you know, this long, somebody is speaking the gospel to you. But that wasn't an accident. It was the Lord. If you first heard the gospel in a youth group or a school Christian union, it wasn't an accident you were there. Just as David sent his messengers here to Hanan, the Lord Jesus made sure his messengers got to you with a message of consolation and kindness. The question that chapter 10 and chapter 9 pose, therefore, is how we're going to respond to his kindness. So secondly, verses 3 to 5, kindness rejected. So into Ammonite territory go David's messengers of compassion. And by verse 4, they've been utterly humiliated. I mean, picture it, that walking down the dusty road in your direction, a group of men, their heads are bowed, their 
beards, which represent their dignity, have been half shaved off. Their royal uniforms have been slashed and ripped in a deliberately embarrassing way. And their hands are protecting their modesty. Their feet are shuffling down the road in shame. This is a picture of total humiliation. Notice here, the king's enemies get at the king through his messengers. It's always been this way. It's still the same today. Uh, the Barnabas Fund, which does such a good job at raising awareness about the persecuted church around the world, uh, this week suggested that we pray for Pastor Joseph Shabazian, jailed in Iran for 10 years, and for converts Mina and Malihe, six years, and for uh, Masuma and Samaya, both fined. And their crime, as far as we can tell, being Christians in Iran wanting to live and speak for a kind king, wanting to bring to other people a message of compassion and hope. So why, why does this happen here in chapter 10? Why is David's kindness in verse two responded to with humiliation in verse four? And the answer of course is there in verse three. Did you see it? Did you see what Hanan's commanders come and do? Verse three, see them there in verse three, pouring pestilence into his ear. I remember almost no Shakespeare from school English lessons, it won't surprise you to know. But I remember that phrase, pouring pestilence. It comes from Othello, uh, one of Shakespeare's great villains, Iago, whispering lies, pouring pestilence into Othello's ear, turning him against his loyal wife, Desdemona. You think, well, Shakespeare's not your thing. All right, maybe Tolkien. Tolkien fans think of Wormtongue. He sits, he crouches next to King Theoden. He turns him against the good wizard, wizard Gandalf. You can insert your own example from literature. Pouring pestilence, pouring lies into the mind. And the problem with lies, of course, is that people believe them. As Mark Twain's supposed to have said, a lie can travel around the world and back again while the truth is lacing up its boots. And so these commanders sow the seeds of suspicion and Hanan's heart hardens against David and his kindness. What we're reading here is the oldest trick in Satan's playbook. He used it, didn't he, with Eve in the Garden of Eden? And just as here, he used questions rather than assertions. Did God really say? Is God really good? Does God really want, what, want, want what's best for you? Are you sure? In the Gospels, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. He's the original conspiracy theorist. He's a non-stop fountain of anti-God propaganda. He never stops lying about God. God is kind, and Satan says he's mean. God is fair, Satan says he's corrupt. God is patient, Satan says he's trigger-happy. So it's no surprise is it, when the Lord Jesus arrives, all of Satan's accusations and lies are focused on him and on his church. Is Jesus really kind? Is he really good? This gospel, is it really good news for the world or is it just another tool of oppression for the West? If you're exploring Christianity, we are so pleased you're here, so pleased. Can I ask you, where are you getting your views of the Lord Jesus from? Are you believing second-hand rumors? 
when someone says that Jesus and his people are, for example, to pick one of many accusations leveled against him, anti-women, have you checked that out for yourself? Or do you just accept it as fact? When you hear that Jesus and his church are intolerant and bigoted, have you opened up the gospel to check? Or have you fallen for the lie? It's interesting, you know, people often get a surprise when they first start to spend time with Christians. They discover they don't have horns and three heads. They're not what they've been portrayed as, perhaps in the media. Incidentally, when uh, Jesus was walking the earth, do you know what his enemies accused him of being? What did they say about him? They said he was too tolerant, too friendly to the wrong sorts of people. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, they said. You see, Satan doesn't care whether the accusation's true. He'll flip the accusation right, right round depending on the generation. He'll say anything that works, anything people will believe. See through the lies. And look, Christians, we need to see through those lies too, don't we? The idea that Christ is harsh and unkind is a lie. The idea that serving him is going to leave you miserable and unfulfilled is a lie. Or that the sacrifices involved in following him won't be worth it in the end when you see Christ, it's a lie. And the idea that sharing the gospel with your colleagues is somehow unloving or unkind, it's a lie. This is why we need to keep opening God's word, isn't it? To let God speak the truth. We need to hear Jesus in his own words and not in the words of those who tell lies about him. Well, Hanan believes the lies about David here. And his response, as we've seen, is appalling. A snapshot right there of humanity's rebellion against God, enjoying amazing kindness from God in his world, and responding with disgrace. He's made an enemy of God's king. And if you know the Bible, you know that never ends well. So thirdly and finally, the rest of the chapter, six to the end, judgment deserved. Judgment deserved. I think as you read through the rest of the account, and it's all very military and very battle-focused, I think two things stand out, really. Two things about David's decisive conquest of this anti-David coalition. It's slow and it's certain. Particularly striking though, I think, is its slowness. Did you sense as we read through how slow David seems to be to act? If you were David's military advisor, wouldn't you be tearing your hair out? David, do something. You've got to fight this, you've got to crush this. But true, he protects his men there in verse five, and we're maybe expecting the declaration of war from David to come in verse 6. We do get a declaration of war, but not from David. The Ammonites are the one who form up in ranks. They're the aggressors there in verse 6, along with some hired guns from Syria. And it's only in response, apparently, that David sends Joab and his mighty men there in verse 7. And even then, did you notice there's no real fighting? Joab and his brother Abishai divide to scare away the split forces of Ammon and Syria and the enemy notice flees without blood being shed. And it's only when Hadadezer, down in verse 15, forces David to come and fight, that David finally turns up himself and demolishes the Syrian army. 
It's almost as though there's a sort of reluctance about David. And again, David here is acting as God's king. You know, one of Satan's favorite lies about God, it seems, and about the Lord Jesus, is that he's cruel and unkind. He tells us that God loves to crush and dominate and destroy. And I imagine we find that easy to believe because we think that God is just a bigger version of us. That we can be unkind, can't we? So we assume he can. We can be mean-spirited and stingy. We assume he can. After a, a tiring day, we can just lose it with the kids. For a terrible day at work, we send off that stinky email overreacting to a colleague. We think, well, presumably God's the same. But the message of the Bible over and over and over is that God isn't like us. We opened this evening with a reminder of that, didn't we? Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. His fuse is incredibly long and it burns incredibly slowly. He's like that firework that, you, that takes so long to ignite that you suspect it must be a dud. It's as though he, he sprints towards kindness and compassion, but he dawdles towards anger and judgment. He just loves mercy. This was Jonah's problem, wasn't it, when it came to Nineveh? Remember Jonah going and preaching a message of judgment, you know, getting his popcorn out and waiting for God's sulfur to fall, and then seeing Nineveh repent, seeing God relent, and Jonah hated it. I knew you'd do this. You just so love mercy. It's why, isn't it, the Bible is such a long book. I mentioned we had a, a good time at the quiz last night. Um, and the talk was very short last night, but it was just a simple encouragement that people should read the Bible for themselves. And my advice was that people would start with the gospel. That's often what we say, isn't it? Start with one of the gospels. Why? Well, not least because the Bible is a long book. And if you start at the beginning, as many of us have discovered, you might give up at around, I don't know, Leviticus, if you get that far. Why is the Bible such a long book? It should be three chapters long, shouldn't it? Creation, fall, judgment, over. What we actually get, creation, fall, Genesis 3, and then over a thousand chapters of love and patience to a rebel world, including the sending of his son. And still, even now, 2,000 years after the last word of the Bible was written, the day of judgment still hasn't come. Why not? 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see his kindness to a rebel world. You see, to get to hell, to get to the place of God's judgment, a person has to first harden themselves against a lifetime of God's kindness, refuse a lifetime of witness and appeal from the Lord. And it's only then, if they insist as David's enemies seem to hear, if they insist, if they refuse to repent and to be forgiven, God's slow but certain judgment falls. And that's, of course, the other thing, the final thing here, the certainty of this deserves judgment. The outcome of this battle shouldn't be a surprise. If you've read 2 Samuel 7, you know that God has promised to give strength to his king and establish his kingdom. So fighting against God's king is a foolish enterprise. If you read chapter 8 carefully, you'll notice that the outcome is specifically given for this battle in advance. So, no shocks here. 
But even if all we had were chapter 10, we'd know the outcome. Notice um, a conversation that Joab and Abishai have there in chapter 10, verse 12. Here, Joab reminds Abishai and reminds the reader that this battle isn't just about Hadadezer and David. It's not just about two local kings. This is a battle with the Lord. 10, verse 12, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. You see, picking a fight with God never ends well. And so it proves, through his king, the Ammonites are so decimated that the Syrians, in verse 19, daren't stand alongside them again. God's judgment is slow and certain. And whether we find that to be good news or bad, I suppose depends on where we're standing. It's good news, actually, isn't it, for those disgraced and humiliated men from verse 4 here, whose vindication finally came after the appalling treatment they'd received. And it's true to say, isn't it, that Christ's final victory, the kind of victory we read about in Revelation and so on, that final victory will be amazingly good news for people like the pastor I mentioned earlier, stuck in a prison in Iran unjustly, publicly shamed for the simple crime of wanting to love other people with the gospel and follow the Lord Jesus. It will be good news for him, won't it? He can wait patiently knowing that God's vindication is coming. It'll be good news, won't it, for every Christian martyr, every disciple of the Lord Jesus forced to carry their cross by a hostile world. Justice and vindication are certain. God's justice may come slowly, but it will come eventually. And the Bible reassures us that it's not wrong to rejoice in that truth. Read Revelation and see the songs of joy in God's vindication and justice. But of course, for God's enemies, this is very bad news. For those who set themselves up against God's king, it's very bad news. For those who make themselves enemies of the Lord Jesus and consistently refuse his kindness, chapter 10 is a terrible warning. It says to us, don't make Hanan's mistake. Don't make Hadadiza's mistake. Don't reject Christ's kindness to you. Don't reject his general kindness. Every kind and good gift he's given you since the day you were born. Don't reject the specific kindness of his gospel appeal as he comes to you and offers you forgiveness and pardon by the blood of his son. Listen to his messengers. Hear his gospel invitation. Come and be forgiven. We're going to leave 2 Samuel for a while, particularly over Christmas. But it, these feel like two good chapters to finish on, 9 and 10, because they offer us such a clear choice, don't they? They present us with a king of amazing kindness, and they ask us, how will you respond? How will you respond to his kindness? Will you reject his kindness? Like these men here, Hanan, Hadadezer, and others, and so choose judgment? Or will you humble yourself like Mephibosheth? Will you receive Christ's mercy as a free gift? Receive his forgiveness and find a seat at his table and a home in his family. Jesus' kindness is on offer to all of us. How will we respond? Let's pray.
Apostle Paul in Romans 2 writes this. He says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Father, we want to say thank you for your extraordinary kindness to us since before even we were born. Thank you for the kindness of every good thing we've enjoyed, every moment of happiness and joy from your hand. But we want to thank you supremely for the kindness of the gift of your son, kindness personified, kindness come to a cross for us. Thank you for the kindness of sending the gospel to us and opening our hearts to respond. Father, we pray that you'd help us to keep responding to your kindness with repentance and faith and gratitude. Give us courage to keep extending this offer of kindness and consolation in the gospel to everybody. Help us not to be put off, please, by the lies spread about Jesus and his church. And we pray that through our efforts, our weak efforts, many others like Mephibosheth might find in your king a place in your family. In Jesus' name, amen.